Gentlemen, I realize that this is an afternoon session and that many of you are itching to get home. So although I realize that previous speakers gave the entire talk with every Nakuda and uh, also flexed their elocutionary muscles, I'm going to give it to you straight and do with it what you do with it what you will. The first one is on is a Yisker sermon for Yom Kippur. Perhaps the most devastating comment that we have on the nature of man and his destiny comes after the Yonasana Tokev prayer. Adam Yesodo Meyafar, Vesofo Leafar, and so on. Man's origin is dust, his end is dust, and the python compares him to fragile earthenware, a passing shadow, a dissipating cloud, floating dust in a transient dream. And it's true that man's life is like all these things. But especially, could sail over like a passing shadow. And if we look about the empty seats or the congregation in general, we see the people who were here last year who are no longer here now. We wonder what's going to happen with people who are here now, how fate and destiny will treat us. Life is sail over. In so many instances, a passing shadow, that and nothing more. But that does, that does not mean that man must abandon himself to hopelessness. Man must not despair because his life is so short, so insecure, so insubstantial, so shadowy. And the question is, if life is only a passing shadow, does it therefore mean that man can do nothing about it and that all of life is meaningless? And Chazal were quick to point out that that is not the case. For while life is only a shadow, it still is up to us to decide what kind of shadows our lives are going to be. A shadow may be insubstantial and immaterial, but it can have a constructive use. For the weary traveler on the hot, dusty summer road, a shadow is a godsend. For the Bedouin in the blazing desert, there is a shadow of the oasis. The shadow of a loving mother bending over a crib. Or the shadow of a loving mate instilling a sense of security. So that a shadow, though life is, it is our duty to mold it into the right kind of shadow. And Chazal meant just that when they declared, and I don't recall exactly where this mimer is, I think it's in... You can check on the in the reference book for it. Ulevai Katsilo shall kosel, O Katsilo shall ilon, Velo Katsilo shall o fishosh. If man's life can be no more than a shadow, let it be at least like the shadow of a wall, or certainly like the shadow of a tree, but never like the shadow of a bird in flight. The shadow of a bird in flight is of absolutely no use to anyone. It gives no shade, no comfort, no gladness. Even while the bird lives and casts the shadow, it's of no use because the shadow is shifty and therefore no benefit. 
Therefore, we have to be sure that man's life will not be that sort of shadow, the shadow of an oath keshihu us. The shadow of a wall is somewhat better. At least while the sturdy wall exists, it casts a strong and beneficial shadow under which others may rest and find comfort and security. Better than the bird, yes, but not good enough. For once that wall has toppled over, once it has, so to speak, died, or ceased to exist, no shadow of a wall will be of use or comfort. But death certainly kills it. And a man who is like this kind of shadow is gone and forgotten after life. Life's shadow has passed, like the wall which topples and has no shadow afterwards. What should the passing shadow of life be like? Kutsilo shall ilan, like the shadow of a tree. The majestic oak, even after it's cut by the woodsman's axe, or after it's toppled by lightning, even afterwards the shadow continues to grow. For a branch or seed of that tree has no doubt been planted someplace, and that branch or tree has become now a new tree, given birth to a new, beautiful shadow. The shadow of a tree, therefore, is only a shadow, but an eternal one. Death does not vanquish it, and the shadow of a tree outlives the woodsman, the electric storm. It outlives even old age. And here you declaim, Poor man, Kazal cry on, these, on this holy day. At these memorial services on this holy day, feel yourself you who feel yourself at the mercy of death, that life is only a passing shadow, do not despair. See to it that it is not like the bird in flight, like the wall. Do not allow death to win. Be rather like the shadow of a tree, casting your shadow onto eternity. In other words, continue to live even after death. Continue the lives of your loved ones even after they have gone. Squeeze the pain, the misery, and the sorrow out of death. Let death give birth to life. Kutsilo shall ilon like the shadow of a tree. And as rabbis, we can testify that such things do happen. Here you see people who are just wandering driftwood. No meaningfulness to life. But a parent dies. As a result, he comes in to say Kaddish for a year. Sometimes chapters are trying to yisker a your side. And often you see just such an occasion. We see in the person who's drawn into a synagogue, drawn into Jewish life. His life has new dimensions, new horizons, and he begins to feel and to live like a real Jew. In that case, death, or rather the previous life, was like the shadow Kutsilo Shil Ilan. It has given birth to a new shadow, to a new life. There's an old Jewish legend which has become part of Jewish folklore about a famous Hebrew poet, you know the story, who sprouted life even while he was still in the grave. And I refer here to the story of Ibn Gabirol who paints his life as a very dramatic one, a very tragic one, who was buried with a fig in his hand. And after a sufficient time, a sufficient number of years passed, a fig, a fig tree grew out of his hand in the grave. In that he symbolized the fact that death is not final, that out of, out of death itself there can be life. Kasilo Shotilam. 
there's a short poem by Yehuda Halevi, which I don't have the Hebrew of, I have Nina Solomon's translation. And if we ask, what is the way to do this? How do you make that shadow the shadow of a tree? How can you draw the spark of life out of the darkness of death? Yehuda Halevi prescribes the way. And here are the words that I have. When I remove from thee, O God, I die whilst I live. But when I cleave to thee, in death I live again. So that cleaving to God, living an inspired and religious and holy life, sticking to the ideals of Torah, coming to shul every Shabbos and here you give your mother, that is one way of cheating death and being assured of life eternal, of in death I live again. Living for a principle and dying for a reason is not dying at all. It is only planting a new seed which will cast the same shadow. And here you can give the illustration of, of the tragedy of Europe. Without going into too much detail, you say they were all killed, so many martyrs. But does that mean that that was the end of it, that it had no constructive purpose? Of course, it was the greatest tragedy the earth ever knew. But at the same time, a seed was planted, and as a result of that particular holocaust, the state of Israel grew. The righteous in death are called living. In other words, when a man dies for righteousness, he is more alive than... Now at this point, you can go two ways. There's one, uh, one famous piece of homiletics which three or four people have told me so far and each one has claimed it was original. I suppose it was original someplace. You probably know it. Benoni and Benjamin. Picture of Rachel dying on her deathbed and she wants to call this child, the child of her misery, she wants to call him Benoni, the child of my misery. She wants the stigma of death, the stigma of her pain and her tragedy to continue throughout life. But Yaakov Venus says, no, let him be called Benjamin the son of my right hand. In other words, out of tragedy you draw forth a blessing. Out of death, life. Out of the misery you draw, draw forth a son of the right hand. Um, or, those of you who perhaps want to be more literary can tell the story of Moby Dick. You remember the end of the novel, Yishmael or Ishmael, the, the narrator, is thrown into the water as the ship sinks because Moby Dick the whale has splashed it and he is the only one to be saved. How? And here the book, the main idea of the book perhaps comes out. He grasps onto a floating wooden object and when he's saved he realizes it was a ship's coffin. The idea that coffin, C-O-F-F-I-N, coffin. I wanted to be sure you got it right okay. Uh, in other words, again, the idea that death is not final, that death itself can be used, that it itself can grow again, life can be taken from it. And in fact, 1800 years before this story was told by an American novelist, history itself records such a fact, not as fiction, but as fact. And you know, of course, what I refer to. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who built the great yeshiva of Yavna, how was he saved from a Roman prison? It was by a ruse. His disciples or students took him out of the prison in a coffin. An incident, but a symbol nevertheless. 
symbol that death is not final, that a coffin can give birth to a yeshiva, that out of death there can come life again. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, no, I just want, I'm skipping a lot of the mush. Uh, these are the basic examples, and of course, if you want to make an appeal at the end, so you finish with the, with the cry of, uh, make the appeal and finish it with the words, let us hear a chorus of voices singing out in sanctity, Bila Hamoves Lanetza. Bila Hamoves Lanetza. Death has vanished into life eternal. Death has certainly not put an end to our loved ones, for we by our actions today shall perpetuate their lives into eternity. And this is for education, it's by raising a generation of God-fearing Jews and so on. May we by our philanthropy defeat the finality of the Malachim of it and declare the victory of the forces of life. That's that sermon. Now, Bikita, there is one other thing you might be able to use it's coming out in the next manual, in the manual for Shabbat sermons, uh, but you won't get it before Yom Kippur. Uh, and I have a sermon there for Achron Shel Pesach, which can easily be used for Yitzchak on Yom Kippur. I use it three times so far, twice on Yom Kippur and once on uh, Achron Shel Pesach. No, no, of course not. <laughs> so the idea is this. Tchiyat HaMesim. It's a yisker, sir, yisker topic. What is Tchiyas HaMesim? I'll forget the whole spiel now. You can say that Tchiyas HaMesim, in a sense, signifies to us, even today, something of contemporary importance. It's something of eternal com- uh, importance. Because Tchiyas HaMesim, in a broader sense, means that every man has a second chance. In his first attempt at life, he sometimes fails. He sometimes weakens. There are defects in his deeds and his actions. And he wants a second chance, a second chance to come back, start anew, start fresh, and do the thing right, the way it should be done. That is Tchiyat HaMesim, the second chance. Now, Chazal, Beis and Beis have a focus actually, and although we usually accept Beis I'm going to ask you as a matter of homiletic license, to allow me to work only on Beis Shammai. Beis Shammai says, Briyoso shel Adam, I don't know if I'm quoting correctly, I haven't got it with me here. I'm sure of that, Rabbi Berman. I'm sure. Briyoso shel Adam begins with Gidim Vaat, with Oyobotar, first the skin and the flesh, then Gidim Vaat Samos. When man is created, when man is born, First, the flesh and the skin form. Then God makes the gidim v'atzomot, the blood vessels and the bones. And tchiyat hamesim will be reversed, Beishamai says. First will come the, the gidim v'atzomot, and then will come the orobotar. And people wonder, I mean, we can very easily ask if Beishamai had nothing more important to do than to figure out how tchiyat hamesim will take place compared to briyasa shel adam. Skin, flesh. We today don't know the first thing about it, despite the fact that we're more advanced. What do they mean? They had to mean something deeper. And that's exactly what they meant. Briyoko Shaladam, the birth of man in his first attempt at life, his first adventure in life, his first 
effort. What does he look for? He looks for our robusta, skin and flesh, the external, the glisten, the glamour, the glow. It's only the outside that attracts and the externals. Life is only skin deep, Aurobasa, skin deep. He's interested only in the superficial, what's beautiful. As far as Gidimba Samos, Samos means bone, the framework of the, the, the skeleton of life, the backbone, the ability to speak out for the unpopular, the ability to bear a burden or Gidim. And you know what blood stands for in, in, in uh, biblical language, Kiadam Huhanefesh. Matters of the spirit and the soul, the real essential things of life, the deep things of life. That he forgets about, that he leaves for later. First he has Orubosa, then Yidimvad Samos. And so Chazal tell us, if at this attempted life you fail, if coming today to a synagogue you find, looking back over the entire expanse of your life, that you have made many mistakes, that somehow it's meaningless, you don't get out of it what you want to get out of it. And perhaps the mistake was that you started the wrong way. You started with Orobasa. And you made that as your main goal in life. Now with Tiyas and Mason on your second chance. On the second chance of living again. At correcting what was done. If you want to be a success now. Reverse the order. Begin with Gidem Vatsamos. With backbone. With soul. With spirit. With blood. Show that you're a red-blooded Jew. Be a true deep Jew rather than superficial. And then the older Buster will naturally come because once a man will have that deep inner sanctity, that deep inner uh, strength, then the superficial, the beauty, the aesthetics will all follow naturally. That's the kit there is the second idea. I originally wrote this for last Shabbos, but I was hurricaned out by Hurricane Edna. I had delivered this originally on Hurricane Carol, or intended to. Now, you can use it this week. I have one reference to last week's Sedra. You can put it into any week's Sedra. And I'm sure you know the techniques of it very well. Last two hurricanes, which swept through New England and New York, left in their wake more than twisted tree trunks or changed landscapes or broken homes or even human carnage. They left behind a residue of doubt and perplexity in the minds and hearts of many people. Many people who were frightened and appalled and began to wonder about the entire thing. It set them thinking. And primarily the question was a religious question. It was asked mostly by religious-minded people. And to a great extent it was addressed to teachers of religion. And the question was, essentially, if it is true that Ruach Siara Osa Devaro, that God is the author of the hurricane, then why did God do it? Why did God unleash such blind fury against us? Why the sudden eruption of peaceful calm nature into such an outburst of violence? Such senseless destruction cannot possibly have meaning. And if, can't, if it can't have meaning, then the only conclusion is that the world is really an evil place and that senseless evil and cruelty predominate in life. Now it's a hard question, but it's a fair question. A question we have to face and we have to answer. And what can we, the students of Torah, answer to it? First, that this proves the predominance of evil, that the world is really an awful place, that we categorically reject. And just as a ha'ara, 
when an Arab philosopher by the name of Al-Razi came to the same conclusion on the, on the same basis of hurricanes and earthquakes and floods that the world was essentially evil, the Rambam referred to him in terms such as mad, foolish, and stupid. Because essentially we believe that if God created the world, the world cannot be evil. It must be basically a good place. That is the, that is the essence of the Jewish optimistic outlook upon life. And perhaps, perhaps we should think that the very infrequency and rarity of a hurricane and the frequency of calm proves that good is the rule and evil the exception. That's just an aside. As for the basic question of why, we can't really give a complete and satisfying answer just as a scientist cannot give a complete rationale, a complete explanation of the causes of the hurricane. The last two hurricanes were predicted not too accurately by our weathermen, despite their equipment and the advances of science. Similarly, spiritual leaders, teachers of religion, th religious thinkers, cannot give a complete explanation of why does God send a hurricane. But it doesn't mean that while we can't explain the entire meaning of a terrible storm, that it's meaningless. It certainly is not senseless. Because to us, Ruach Siyara does personify or represent God's will. And therefore, it, is, it was his will that we learned something. And as part of the many things, many lessons we can draw from this hurricane, we will take three. Three lessons or morals, causes, effects, three spiritual dimensions of this particular storm. The first one should be obvious to anyone who has thought about the thing in any decently serious manner. And that is, the lesson is, it has tried to curb our arrogance and teach us humility. For are we not the most brazen generation since the generation which tried to build the Tower of Babel? And we go into the whole spiel. We think we have massive, brilliant, and intricate, intricate techniques. We have tremendous machines. Our jet planes and H-bombs, they comfort us. We are a mechanized, a race of mechanized giants and atomic supermen. And we, convinced, we are convinced that we have conquered nature and subdued her. And occasionally it occurs to some of us to ask and to wonder that if equipped and powerful as we are, whether we still need God. We have conquered nature, we think, and therefore we do not have to have a God to whom to pray to protect us, to protect us from it. And if this is the arrogance and conceit which modern technology has given us, then it has to be cured and cured fast, and a little hurricane or two is just what the divine doctor ordered. Maram Brothers Daf Nuntet Lo nivra'u da'omim This is by Rabbi Yehoshua Balevi Lo nivra'u da'omim Ela lifshot akmumiyos shebelev Storms are created in order to straighten out crooked hearts. The heart of, ma of modern man is crooked with arrogance and a hurricane can straighten it out. So we feel that we can make rain, God can make it better. We have mechanized speedboats, God can take those, those speedboats and smash them into smithereens against a rock. We have the knowledge and the machines for beautiful landscaping. God merely blows a little bit and the shapes of beaches change so that we can no longer recognize them. 
We think we have beautiful summer homes on the beaches with all conveniences that can weather all kinds of storms. Foolish man cries, God, I've just washed it into the ocean. Nothing is left. And if man thinks that he has medicine under his control, that he has, he can split the atom, he can beat the speed of sound, medicine can't help those who are already who are drowned, the atom bomb cannot stand up against the fury of the winds, and his supersonic generators cannot do anything about the screeching eeriness of this hell-bent fury which has come upon us. Straighten out your heart. Don't be so proud and arrogant. Your machines and techniques will not help you. God just blows and all man's defenses crumble into insignificance. And our first afterthought, therefore, after the winds have passed and the storm is spent, is, my God, I still need you, for I am only dust and ashes, helpless, weak and insecure and frightened. My God, in other words, your storms have taught me humility. They have straightened my heart. Lo, nivra ura amim elo lipshaos akmumiyo shabale. Lesson number two lies in the opposite direction. Now, frankly, this is the weak point. This is where I had the shepherd to last week's desert. And our afterthought now is directed not to the destruction and devastation, but to the many who survived it and the fact that it passed. And that is that lest man think that God has forsaken him. Lest man think that because of these sudden catastrophes or cataclysms of nature, that his journey through life is all one of sorrow and worry and tragedy, that he thinks that God remains aloof in heaven, not caring about him, a hurricane comes along to highlight Judaism's ever-present optimism and its reaffirmation of hope. And how does it do it? Some of us may recall the aspects, the deeds of heroism that were recounted the day after the hurricane. Here a woman managed to save countless neighbors. She proved that she had a divine soul. That even during the hurricane and during the storm, God was with her. Godliness was in her. Here a little boy at the risk of his own life saved another little boy. He had a divine character. God's spark of courage was within his soul. He was able to be godly even during the hurricane. And then the fact that so many people noticed that they were untouched by the hurricane. So many more were unhurt than were hurt. That itself proves that God was with them even during the hurricane. It sort of puts things into blacks and whites to let you appreciate the goodness of God. And of course, for this we use last week's Sedra. Ki hehorim ki may know of those flee. Ashenishbati may avor may know of others, I think. Ki ahorim yamushu vahagos muteno mechasi meiteh yamush. That God shows us that despite the fact that storms of exile have have been sent upon us, despite the fact that mountains have been moved, God's favor and love for us never depart. We who survived the hurricane can now appreciate that, that despite all the evil, there is still that spark of hope. The third one is the interesting one. And here we have one of timeless and yet timely significance. And Chazal expressed this in a very, very beautiful 
Maimar. This too is in Brachis, the same daf where all the halachas of Brachis of the natural of natural uh, phenomena are discussed. Nuntes, Nuntes. Bishosha Kodesh Baruch Hu Zocher as Bonov Shashriyim Betzar Bein Umaos Haolam Morij Tei Demaos El Hayam Hagodo Vekolo Nishma Misofa Olam Vaasofa. When God remembers his children living a life of pain amongst the nations, he sheds two tears into the great sea, and the splash is heard round the world. That's a hurricane. That means that Hurricane Carol and Hurricane Edna and every hurricane is the splash of God's tears as he himself remembers and reminds us of those less fortunate than ourselves. It's a lesson of sympathy. The hurricane reminds us of those who must all their lives, not for one day, not for two days, but live entire lifetimes threatened by hurricanes and fury and violence of all kinds. God's tear splashing upon the sea, that hurricane, reminds us of Bonov Sheshuyim Besar Beinumot Ha'olam. Here, of course, use it for anyone, anything you wish. It can be used for an appeal too, I assume. You have the, you have the, our fellow Jews who are Shuyim Betsar behind the Iron Curtain. Look at the hurricanes they face, the storms of propaganda, the evil winds of persecution, the deluge of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in which their own youth is caught. Or our fellow Jews living in the Arab countries, in the Melas of Morocco, in the turbulent towns of North Africa right now, the storms and hurricanes they must weather every day of their lives. The state of Israel itself, having to weather storms not only now from Arab countries, but even from our own government, from the Allies, so that when we have a hurricane of this sort, and when we get shaken up a bit, that causes us to remember them. So therefore, the third lesson, the third lesson, the third spiritual dimension of that hurricane is Bonav Shriyam Betzar. All three together, therefore, the first one is humility, the second one is hope, the third one is sympathy, Bonav Shriyam Betzar. And if those hurricanes were able, can accomplish only that, they might have been worthwhile.